Swedish-born artist David Sandum is also an author and the founder of the Twitter Art Exhibit. I do my normal rambling, but his insights and experiences are what makes this a really fascinating conversation, and you can find his info in the podcast description. Howdy, Paintcast listeners. It's Bonnie. Follow us on Instagram at Paintcast Podcast, at Long underscore Painter, and at Bonnie Miller Art. So, David. I've been recently seeing your blue hour walking pics on Instagram. Mm-hmm. They're so fantastic. Where are you walking there in Norway? <laughs> okay. So I live in Moss, which is um, about 45 minutes South of Oslo by train. And, uh, uh, but I live actually 15 minutes outside of Moss in a place called Vålid. Um, it's spelled with an A uh, with a dot on top. <laughs> it's kind of hard for Americans to, to say or, but anyway, it's yeah, a beautiful, it, it, it's a beautiful area. It, it's hard for Americans to do a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we yeah. have some, le- we have some letters that you don't have like an O with a cross in it and, uh, or a line across. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh. In Gothenburg, right? That has a O with a cross in it. No, well, in, in Norwegian, but in Swedish, it would have an O with two dots on top, but it's pronounced oh. the same. Oh, okay. okay. So in Swedish, Göteborg is Ö, Göteborg, and it's Göteborg in Norwegian, but with a different letter. Yeah. All right. You do these walks. How far are you walking? Because I'm, I'm not sure. You posted one time, and mm. I, I didn't know the kilometer to mile conversion off the top of my head, but mm-hmm. it just kind of struck me as, oh, wow, that was kind of a long walk. Yeah, I do. Let me search um, what that is in miles. <laughs> so, like, uh, 23 kilometers would be two miles. That would be... What, around 10 or 11, maybe? No, it's 14.29 English miles. Oh. So I've done walks around 15, 15 miles. No, 15K. So, no. I'm getting all confused here. <laughs> well, yeah. you no, walk for a while. I walk for a while. About 15 miles sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a fantastic walk. I mean, I think I, back in the autumn was doing six or seven and wow so double that huh well not every day i mean i usually do a long walk maybe once a week and then i do some interval runs in the woods but these walks uh it's been fantastic to do it all year even though it's snow and cold and dark i get out there and walk and um seeing how the light changes um now we're into the light season 
Land of the Midnight Sun. So it doesn't really yeah. get dark now. The sun sets around 10.30, 10.40 p.m. And I mean, the sun is bright till about 10 p.m. So a little different now. I was just about to ask you when you were taking those great photos. Yeah, usually but, around sundown and a little okay. bit later. Yeah. Have you painted any of those photos or that you've no. taken? Okay. No. Um, you know, uh, I'm not uh, a plain air painter or, you know, someone who works from photographs. So okay. f- photography in and by itself to me is art, of course. So I use photography as photography. and But when I paint, uh, I usually start with a white canvas and just make stuff up. So, you know, uh, painting can be combination of many different impressions or things that have happened or psychological things going on yeah so uh i'm more of an expressionistic painting painter where i Indeed, yeah transmit emotion rather than focus on what i see per se yes i did sort of a deep dive on instagram and then a little bit on the internet your earlier paintings maybe from, I want to say, a decade ago. Mm-hmm. They are, they strike me as a little bit more post-impressionist. That's true, yeah. And then you're, as you've been working, I see a lot of this kind of woodcut print vibe coming mm-hmm. into your shapes, and it has become more expressionist. And um, yeah, you use those really vibrant colors, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really think that people should go and check out. Um, now, do you have a website or do you just use Instagram as your main source? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I, I use Instagram more as a daily feed, usually uh, uh, photographs from my walks, uh, a lot of nature photographs, um, sky photographs, things like that but also my daily work, my drawings, uh, paintings. Uh, My website is davidsandom.com, and there I have more of a generic library of all my different kinds of work. So I do oil on canvas, I do gouache on paper, and uh, drawings with watercolor pencils, and uh, then um, printmaking. So I have a sort of basic representation and a shop on my website but I don't keep that up to date. You know, it's uh, if you want to see what I do day to day, definitely Twitter or Instagram okay. uh, and also my Facebook art page, David Sandler yeah. Creative. So I'm all over. Yeah. When did you begin your art journey? Like when did you start painting? Uh, it was actually the year 2000. So that's easy to say. So 20 years ago. Did you just kind of do it on a whim? Were you trained at all or? Um, Well, um, I wrote about this in a memoir called I'll Run Till the Sun Goes Down. And that tells my whole story of how I became an artist. Um, I'll Run Till the Sun Goes Down, a memoir about discovering art, uh, mental or depression and discovering art. (laughs) It's a long title. But um, what basically happened was uh, around the year 2000, I became severely ill with depression and was hospitalized. And I started drawing when I was in my hospital room. And then art really took a hold in me and I used art to deal with my depression. So it wasn't like I 
sat down one day and said, I'm going to be an artist and I want to study art and I want to be a career artist. Uh, it was something I did to deal with my emotions, but art became very central to me early on. And I found a lot of empathy in art from Van Gogh and Munch and others that uh, really inspired me to persuade, persuade my own art. Um, so I started painting fairly quick in that process and also drawing. But I never really sat down and said, I'm going to be an artist and all that. Okay. Uh, maybe around 2003 when I got my studio, that was kind of a defining moment. Because when you get a studio, you feel kind of like, yeah, I'm an artist. I have my space now. So that was maybe when I took a decision to pursue, pursue art full time. Yeah. Okay. Did a doctor or therapist recommend that you start this or did you just do it on your own? No, I just did it uh, entirely okay. on my own. Um, yeah. What did you begin drawing? Um, like the the drawings and that whole story is actually in my book. So you you can download <laughs> it on Kindle and all that. It's hard to explain artwork. You know. No, this. no, no. Hey, hey, uh, I'm I'm, uh, I'm totally into you doing plugs. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, but, no, I'm not trying to sell my book here. I'm trying to if somebody really wants to see what I did, it, yeah. it, it's, it's always easier to see the picture and then explain it. But trying to describe it, what I did was I, I had a black ink pen and a white piece of paper. And I started doing black and white ink drawings uh, and I started drawing my room. I, I drew my bed. Um, I drew my door with my name on it. I drew an image of a trash can that symbolically explained where how I felt about myself at the time. So that's how it started, was I tried to make meaning of my life in symbolic ways through drawing. And um, that's really how it started. Excellent. I love drawing and painting trash cans and dumpsters, but for a completely different reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I just really like the rust and the metal damage and the dents. And I think from a design perspective, they're fascinating. I never thought to connect a meaning to a trash can or a dumpster, but I, I guess that's just the way that my mind works. Um, and uh, but I think that's the great thing. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but oh, no, no, no. I, I love how symbolism speaks to us on our own terms. So, you know, a trash can to me can mean something entirely different than for you. Maybe it's just you think it's cool. You love the color of it, the texture of it, the history of it, you know. So that's what I love about art is that we all interpret it differently based on our own experience and what we want out of it. And there's no right or wrong when it comes yeah. to art. What was my other question for you? Oh, yeah. Um, so the print, I'm, I'm kind of skipping all over the place because I just... <laughs> it's okay. Your printmaking, I, I don't know how long you've been doing it, but it seems like it's informed and changed the way that your paintings appear and kind of mm -hmm. the structure of them. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good observation. It's, it's true. When did you so... begin the printmaking? I started doing printmaking, actually etchings. I, I don't do lithography on a stone. Okay. Uh, so I work with copper plates um, or lino cuts, uh, things like that. But 
Um, I started in 2014 uh, at a printmaking studio in Barcelona under a mm -hmm. master printer named Ignasi, who has worked with Miro and Dali and even Picasso when he was young. And he's a master printer. So, you know, I had to learn printmaking just like I had to learn how to paint. You know, I had no training. I never went to art school. So I've had to be, I'm, I mean, I'm self-taught. And so I just kind of threw myself in there, but I got a lot of help through Ignasi mm -hmm. in developing my technique. And, uh, you know, I've been doing it once or twice a year ever since 2014. And it keeps evolving and I'm trying new things, new techniques. You know, there are, you can do intaglio, scratching with a needle, or you can yep. do aqu aqua tint, um, you know, doing several plates, one per color and then printing that on top of one sheet of paper. And so a lot of different kinds of techniques where we also intermingle in one print, maybe doing some intaglio, some aqua tint, or even carborundum where you use sand in the plate. So that's, that's very fascinating, but it has impacted both my painting, but especially my drawings, because I use black paper now and I use negative space the same way that I would with an etching. You know, because you kind of block out, you know, what's going to be white and dark. Same as if you do a lino cut, you know, you have to think how to use positive and negative space. And so I kind of block out um, the, the figures uh, for, with negative space, which is a very interesting technique. Uh, and I do that intuitively without sketching or anything like that. So definitely my printmaking has affected my drawings and paintings. Side note, um, when you go to Barcelona and the gentleman's name again, Ignacio, I, you said? Ignacy Aguirre-Ruiz. <laughs> it's hard, okay. hard to say it right. But yeah, he is a fantastic individual. Now, how do you communicate with him? Do you speak Spanish? No. Uh, okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's actually a very good question. Uh, there's been a lot of misunderstandings, but, you know, over time, Ignasi, he knows what colors I use. He knows how I'm thinking. And we do a lot okay. of test prints, you know, to do to get to each final product. So, you know, um, we, we communicate with, with maybe I'll use some Spanish terms that I've learned, you know, mm -hmm. you know what the different colors are and things like that. And I'll just say maybe we need a different red and. And then he'll do a test print and I'll say, I'll help him mix the color. We do it together, you know, so um, he, he is the one who, who will get my wishes done correctly onto the plate, you know, and he might suggest that in order to soften that red, we need to use some resina on the plate to make it that way. So I learned from his uh, ex expertise and uh, I could never have done the kind of prints that I do without his help. But I do all the work. I do all the plate work, you know, and I'm part of the process the entire way. So it's, okay. not, un it's not uncommon for artists to work together with a printmaster when you actually print, because that's an entirely different field, how to work with all the assets and, you know, to get all the effects right. And like I said, uh, Ignacy did work with uh, Dali and Miro and, you know, mm -hmm. work together with them to do their printmaking. So it's fascinating. That is so interesting. So you speak English um, mm -hmm. very proficiently. You must have lived here. 
Yes. <laughs> I lived okay. in America from, well, first of all, I went to the U.S. for high school when I was 16 for a year as an exchange mm -hmm. student from Sweden. And then uh, after I got married young at 21, um, my wife was half American and we moved to the U.S. when I was 22. And I went to college there. I went to University of Utah. And we lived in Utah for seven years, seven and a half years, moved back to Norway, where she's from, after I was done. So I've lived eight years of my life or more in the U.S. Okay. Wow. What were you doing at school in Utah? Um, because <laughs> yes. you started doing the painting and drawing in 2000. That would have been before that. So did you have, like, another career? Or no, that was after. So, oh. so I, li I lived in the U.S. from 1994 to 2000. Oh, okay. Or okay. 1993, sorry. So, um, yeah. And when I was, I, I mean, I went to, to university to uh, become a consultant in business. So my training was with business and I was going to be uh, working with Anderson Consulting or something like that, Boston Consulting Group. I interviewed with all of those after I was done. After they moved back to Norway, I started working eventually in the IT industry in sales and got burned out and severely depressed and ended up in a hospital. And that's when I started drawing. Oh, and uh, okay. so that's why I say that art was never something that I had planned almost. It's almost like art found me. Uh, and in that dire situation, because I became so severely depressed that I was suicidal and everything. I mean, I had to go to the hospital for months. So I used art to cope with my difficult emotions. And uh, ever since then, I've still been struggling with depression. And I do a lot of mental health uh, work, uh, speak, speeches, speaking and things like that to promote understanding about mental health too. But art has been the central way in how I have dealt with life ever since and also writing, but mostly art. Do you mostly do those talks, lectures in Norway, Sweden, or do you also do them other places? I've had talks in New York and in London and Edinburgh and Scotland oh. and uh, different places. So, um, but of course, this is where I live. And most, yeah. of, my, most of my speaking is uh, in this area. But I don't do it a whole lot, maybe oh, all right. two, three, four times a year. And if, if I travel somewhere, like I was in Scotland um, for two months last year, I got an artist in resident there in the Highlands. And then I was also involved with mental health groups there and did speeches um, in coordination with my artist in residency. So usually how it goes. And also through Twitter art exhibit, uh, social media, charity invent incent, what do you call it, uh, initiative that I started um, once a year. We have an opening in a new country and I'll usually give a speech to through a mental health organization in that area. So that's how it goes. You already touched on it. I, I was going to ask you about the inception of Twitter art exhibit and how that connects everything, but uh, you sort of did that already. So how long well, ago did you start the Twitter art exhibit? So the first one was in 2010. So we've okay. been doing it for quite a while now. This would be uh, the 10th anniversary in South Carolina in March, but it was stopped due to COVID. But it was actually yes. the 11th year. 
I didn't do one in 2011. So the 10th would be this. It's going to be in uh, September 4th is the mm -hmm. new date for the opening there. And what it is, is it's basically an uh, initiative where artists through Twitter and also now Instagram and Facebook, but um, uh, that's how it started was we were a group of artists on Twitter who supported each other and um, to help my local library in 2010, I asked artists to send hand-painted postcards that we set up on a wall and sold for charity and to raise for that first one was to raise money for children's books, which we did. But every year it's a new charity that the money goes to. But anyone who's creative can make a hand-painted postcard. It can be a drawing or an etching or anything. Put it in an envelope and send it to where Twitter art, art Exhibit is that year and we'll give the money to charity. And so that's grown tremendously. And in Scotland last year in Edinburgh, we had over a thousand artists from 64 countries send work. Yes, and, I, and I remember because I sent a piece. I know, I loved it. <laughs> I saw it on the wall. But, Thanks. you know, if you want to know why I started Twitter Art Exhibit, it's basically because I know what it's like to be rock bottom. And this was a way for me to help some causes, you know, to, do, to make a difference somehow to some people. And it's a, it's a very rewarding project. And it also connects artists with other artists. We make a catalog each year, connects uh, artists with buyers. I don't know if your buyer contacted you who bought the card, but... There's a lot of good stories with that, too. Um, no, I, I don't think they did. No, um, I'm sorry, but, you know, sometimes they may, maybe no. they're old. Maybe they're not engaged oh. in social media. So, yeah, um, I, I, I didn't even know that that was actually a thing. I thought it was just like something for charity. And I, I do as much um, like charity benefit work that I can do every, every year and that was just a really, really cool one because mm -hmm. this one is very specific with the size and, you know, the, the postcard paper. And there are lots of uh, different parameters. And mm -hmm. a lot of times um, giving an existing work for mm -hmm. a charity auction is a little awkward. I'm, I'm not sure how big of a piece or what kind of piece is going to generate the most money for them. And so I have all these thoughts, but to have it be um, really uniform is nice. It, it's, it's one of the few art charities that are completely uniform and that actually offer pieces at a really reasonable rate. So, yeah. yeah and we I mean, all cards are the same price, no matter how known the artist is. And you, you mentioned an important point. One of the things I love about Twitter Art Exhibit is that when you see a thousand cards on the wall and they're all the same size and we hang them in a perfect grid system, it becomes an installation. And it, it, it's just massive to see that. And e each card will then have a label underneath it that says the artist's name, their uh, social media handle, and uh, how they can the buyer can get in touch with the artist, but they're all about $35 each. And we raised about 20,000 pounds to art and healthcare, which did mental health art therapy courses. Uh, so it's, it's fantastic project. 
And but but seeing that as an installation, it's mind blowing. And then to read where all the cards are coming from is so exciting. Some are from India, Japan, Kuwait. I mean, it, all around the world. It's fascinating. Hold on. I just had a question and I just lost it. <laughs> OK. OK. Yeah. So where did you first start advertising the Twitter art exhibit? Uh, was it just between your friends in Europe and then it just kind of spread or did you already know all these people in other parts of the world? I mean, you sound really well-traveled. So what happened was, you know, when social media arrived on the scene, I would say around 2009, maybe I joined Facebook and then Twitter came and in the early days of Twitter, we couldn't post pictures and things like that. But we would send links, um, you know, so a group of artists from all over the world, we, were, we got together and supported each other. That's how it started. You know, okay. I got in touch with an artist in South Africa and an artist in London and an artist in Scandinavia. You know, we were all communicating and supporting each other. And we, we got pretty close. We were probably a group of 40, 50 artists at the time that spent a lot of time looking at each other's work, visiting each other's website, giving each other feedback and support. And that was a fantastic thing because I'd been kind of hidden away in my studio for eight years, not really interacting much with other artists, especially since I'm self-taught and, and in the situation I was with my mental health. So it became really important to me to feel connected with all these other artists and, and a desire grew to do something together. And we, we even explored, you know, having an exhibit, you know, where we would send paintings, but that would be so expensive to ship and what would we do with unsold work and things like that? So the idea of a postcard, you know, it's so cheap to send. A small card you put in an envelope doesn't cost much to send, maybe two bucks, you know. So um, that's how it, the idea got going. And then um, when there was that article in my local paper that the library had had their funding cut for children's books, I put the two and two together and I made a blog post in the day um, I don't have that anymore. It was through Posturus, I think it's called. You, you made an email and send it to a blog. But uh, I got this idea. How about all of us artists here on Twitter, can, can you send me a card to help my local library? And that blog post got like 40,000, 50,000 hits. It just spread. And people said, how can I get involved? And I just posted, uh, you know, uh, this card arrived today and, you know, and kind of curated the whole project. I didn't really have a clear idea about all the organization involved <laughs> that I do now because it's such a big project. You can imagine having a thousand artists and work needs some organization involved. So we're yeah. bored now. We have you know, volunteers sounds... and things like that. So <laughs> <laughs> that does not sound fun to me. I, I, I hope that you have uh, a lot of super organized people because just trying to organize doing like a little charity thing in New Orleans for a handful of people mm -hmm. was such a headache that I really don't want to do it again. It, so, it's a huge job, but the, the way we have it organized now is we're, we're a board that make decisions together about where it's going to be next year, who's going to be the curator on the ground, setting up a support team for the curator, uh, having all the media things uh, ready, working with the charities, uh, selecting which charities we're going to help, and things like that. 
but the curator on the ground is the one who does all the heavy lead work and she works then closely together with a charity and their volunteers to organize you know all the cards that arrive to scan them to file them to label them and then you know usually the board will come and help with the hanging and things like that and attend the opening but it is a massive big project but um we've done it now 10 years and we're we're learning constantly how to to do better <laughs> yeah i i really hope it keeps growing and growing because there's no reason why it shouldn't. Well, we, we'll know? see. We, we take it a year at a time and yeah. we do the best we can. But yeah, the curator does an immense job. I've curated it myself here in Norway three times, so I know. But as it keeps getting bigger and more cards are being sent, um, we're also putting more emphasis on the charity to help with volunteers. And when we do online sales, it has to go through the charity website. So. We don't get accused yeah. of taking the money. So, yeah, yeah. you know, there, there's a lot of uh, volunteers on our end and also from the charities end and the curator and her work team. And uh, I kind of just supervise that whole thing. But I don't want to take credit that I am Twitter Art Exhibit because there are so many people working incredibly hard to make this happen every year. Yeah, I don't know how you could do it on your own. Um, it's impossible. It would, it yeah, would yeah. be absolutely. I mean, I did it fairly alone, but you know, I got 260 cards the first show. Now we get over a thousand, so it's, a, it's yes. a little different. Well, I'm going to try to convince some of the artists I know in New Orleans to do it. Yeah, this upcoming September as well. So, you know, well, it's it's too late now because we were actually going to have the opening in March, and that fell flat oh. on the ground because of COVID. Uh, I was going to fly out to South Carolina to Myrtle Beach to attend the opening, but we had to cancel the opening due to the restrictions. It was impossible to travel, or and uh, yeah, yeah. but um, but uh, we have postponed it then from March to September now. And so are, are but we you... don't. We're not accepting new work because it's just what was sent for the event. But we will have the announcement for next year, which will come around January. And we oh. hope a lot of people attend then. <laughs> yes. Send, send work. I, I'm going to have to do the same because I thought when it was postponed in mm -hmm. March, postponement was for the work and for the other stuff. So yeah. I, I'm an idiot and I, I missed out <laughs> on this year, but I, you're really no, you're, you're no, you're no idiot, Chris. Uh, and <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> we have a lot of supporters, you know, life happens and a lot of people it gets busy and you forget the deadline. It happens. But, you know, next year is next year. And I'll I'll be on your case for. Uh, OK, for good. Next, I'll send you a link to call for artists. It'll be on our website. Twitter.org, I think it is. And then Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff. So when you see it, don't wait. Just jump on it when it's time. <laughs> Fantastic, because I'm super scatterbrained. <laughs> um, it's it's I, a very common artistic trait. <laughs> yeah, I I had another question for you, and of course I didn't write any of this down. I just thought in my head, oh yeah, Chris, you'll definitely remember the ten questions you want to ask David, and you'll be able to do it all in a row, and everything will go super slick. Well, I, I was able to get maybe three, and now <laughs> I've. Lost but, you know, a, a conversation like this can be quite interesting. You never know what's going to happen. So 
Uh, I love following your work, by the way. I've, you, oh, you're thank one, you. You're one of the ones, uh, the first ones I started following on Instagram when I joined that. And I followed you for a long time. And I love your, uh, your plein air work. I assume you're painting outdoors sometimes. Okay. I mostly paint in and around my car. Okay. So it's not standing outside in front of an easel with a funny hat on. And I don't take the photos of my work in front of where I was painting and compare it and do any of that stuff because I'm mostly just kind of in my passenger seat of my car or I'm working on the hood mm -hmm. of my tow car because I, I travel around in an RV. And sometimes I'll paint just outside of the RV or in the RV looking out my big front window. So I consider it plein air, but it's not... It's not photogenic plein air painting. Mm -hmm. it, it's okay. nothing that um, that anyone will look at and have this romantic feeling about what I'm doing. It's just um, real meat and potatoes kind of what, thing. Yeah, one of the things... I'm sorry I'm interviewing you now, but this is an interesting opportunity. <laughs> uh, but one of the things I've noticed about you is that you're very self-critical and you paint over a lot of stuff. Uh, you, you'll say, I'm tired of this one. I, I'm guessing it now, guessing over it. Is there a lot of perfectionism there or what's going on with that? Because uh, I can be a little bit like that too. I tear up some work, but I wonder I about have that. a high standard mm -hmm. for myself and I'm trying to get over this, but I have a high standard for other work I see too. I mm -hmm. want it to live. I want mm -hmm. it to breathe. I don't want mm -hmm. it to be fussy when I look at it. And I want it to capture me and really speak to me. That's one of the reasons I really enjoy following you. Because even though what you do and the way you approach a painting is completely different than me, your paintings have life. It's hard to articulate why certain pieces speak to you on an individual basis. And it's really difficult to try to pin down how you feel about a particular type of painting, or it's really kind of funny to pigeonhole yourself into only really enjoying realism or only really mm -hmm. enjoying abstractionism. And I am kind of at the point now where I'm trying to deal with all that and understand why I do what I do, why mm -hmm. I favor what I favor. Uh, I, I don't know whether that's just the time in my life or because I, I've been painting for about nine years now. So, mm -hmm. Wow, I thought you painted longer. Oh. You're no. excellent. You're very, very skilled. Oh, well, for, I, uh, yeah, I, I really I, enjoy your work. I, I appreciate that. And so I, I don't know if you have the same difficulty in general of um, trying to sort of uh, narrow down the definition of your own taste. Try to. Well, yeah, well, let me stop you there because we're getting into a lot of different points. But I, I really, first of all, there's a lot of people in the art world who, who are trying to define what's good art and what isn't. And they use different criteria for this.
And I think that's a futile discussion. Nobody on some committee or somebody, even if they're, you know, world renowned art historian or whatever, can say this is good art and this isn't. What we can say is this is good art for me. And the, you totally. Know, so, yes, yes. So, so, so what, one, what one person don't connect with, another person love. And that's one of the things I love about Twitter art exhibit is there's so many different kinds of things. We don't say only this kind of work. We say you, we do what you love. And there's some things every year that I don't think, I mean, that I don't connect with at all. And somebody will come in and just love it, you know? So, but as far as my own standard of my own work, I focus more on the feeling than what I see. Right. And so that's, mm -hmm. that's something. And then I thought about what is it, a, a, how can I transmit my emotions the best way? And color is one of the most important things for me. I would say that good balance and use of color is almost more important to me than the motif sometimes. But um, I think that if we like, if we were, if we really connect with, with someone's art, it's because it taps into something in our own psyche, something that we felt, something that it reminds us of. And so I use a lot of common human themes, not as a strategy to sell work, but, you know, longing or loss or love or, or you know, passion or, or love of nature or anything like that. And, and, and when I see your sunsets and your work, I connect to your use of color. I connect to your balance of color. I connect with, you, you know, I'm out there walking in the sunset a lot. And I see a lot of that in your work. And that connects with me. That, that speaks to me. So, you know, we can be concerned what other people think about our work. And I think what it is that you're into now is that you, you just want to be free to do what you want to and not be so impacted on. I need to, okay, this sells, so I need to do that. If you get in that trap as an artist, it's really difficult because you're really doing it to get validation from other people. Uh, I think it's really important to be free and do exactly what you want and what comes to you. And totally. not, not think yeah. about, okay, this, because what a lot, a lot of times what happens now with social media, and I found myself doing this myself. If I post something on Instagram and I get 13 likes, and then I post something and I get 200 likes. Then I might get, you know, trapped into thinking, oh, that was popular. That was good. I need to do more of that. Now I'm actually thinking reverse. When I get 13 likes, I'm thinking, ah, I'm onto something here. Because <laughs> not many people got it. But it's true. You know, it's, it's what I wanted to do. You have to not give a damn to produce good art. I think to a certain extent. Yes, I agree. And it's a challenge i deal with every day because i i really yeah have... because we have to survive too we have to yes. survive we have to sell so it's it's a constant uh, and, and you can get frustrated by that and i think that's maybe why you paint over it's like i'm sick of this i just want to do what i want to do yeah maybe part of that yes yes yeah so uh, i guess i'm still trying to figure out why i have the standards for myself that I do. And well, I'm I think trying... that's easy. Now I'm stopping you again because oh, okay, I want to okay. use, I want to <laughs> use one. No, but this is something we have in common. Sure. You know, per, the word perfectionism, you know, to be a perfectionistic is a very common trait uh, with an artist. We're extremely hard on ourselves. 
And I don't know how many times I've wanted to rip a piece up and somebody says, I think it's perfect the way it is, but I'm not, no, 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 I, I want to burn it. Yeah, but, but why is that? Why are we so hard on ourselves? But, you know, to a certain degree, that's destructive. To a certain degree, that's also good because that's what helps us push forward, you know, to evolve into something. So it's a, it's a tricky balance. <laughs> this, uh, it can be destructive, but it can also be positive. I have met and interacted with some other artists who do not have that perfectionism. They do not have that impulse sometimes to destroy what they do. They just mm -hmm. sort of just kind of see everything in a similar light and they're completely okay with whatever kind of comes out of them. And I admire that and I find it deeply disturbing at the same time. I, I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about other people's confidence either, David. Like mm -hmm. I, I, look at, I look at myself and how critical I am. And in a way, I just kind of want everyone to be as critical of me and as critical of themselves. I know that is completely ridiculous and it doesn't make any sense, but that is part of my impulse to paint over things mm. and to burn things and to keep going. In but some... you keep, yeah, you keep creating good work though. And I, I, what I admire the most in another artist, it is that they're, they're, they're working hard. You know, that's, that's the process that I'm focusing most on. It, there's so many people now that start out painting and they want things to happen so quick and so easy, but it is a tough road to be an artist and you gotta, as long as you're working hard and you keep developing, you know, you, you get this idea too, that if I create 10 drawings, you know, I, I'm starting to understand that not all 10 can be my masterpieces. It's a process. If, if, if I make 10 and five are really good, that's a pretty high standard, you know, but I don't expect everything I do to turn out, you know, perfect. But as yeah. long as I'm working, you know, if I exhibit 40 pieces, I usually think to myself, I got to create 120 and then select the 40 best ones. That's, that's kind of where I'm at. But if, wow. I, if, I, if I am to exhibit every <laughs> single piece that I make, I know it's not going to be the best show I've had. Yeah, um, I, I'd like to get there. I mean, I, I'm at like maybe one out of every 60 or 70. Oh, come on. No, no. I wish your followers on Instagram had something to say on this. Because embrace some of their love. Embrace some of their support. <laughs> and, and be, be you know, once I was sitting with a psychologist, not, I was very depressed at the time. And we were talking about this from a mental health perspective. Because this is also a symptom of depression, right? That mm -hmm. if you're in a depressed state, you don't feel you have any self-worth. You don't feel you're good. You're comparing yourself to others. And, you know, my, my psychologist said, if you compare yourself to Vincent all the time, you're going to have an issue. You're comparing yourself to the best painter ever lived, one of the best painters ever anyway. And he said something I'll always remember. I'm trying to remind myself of. He said, David needs to learn to be kind to David. And, 
you know, that kind of self-love and not, not to be destructive about yourself and not to spit yourself in the face. That's something I'm constantly working on because I'm very hard on myself. I can love everybody else, but I'm very hard on myself. And, I, you know, people will tell me it's fantastic what you started with Twitter Art Exhibit. Aren't you proud of, you know, giving thousands of pounds to charity or, you know, I, I don't feel I've done anything special. You know, I don't, you know, I'm just the same David, you know, but I, I have a hard time feeling good about things that I accomplish. And um, it, it's tied into that perfectionism I feel when I paint and draw. And if you... If you take a painting to something I've tried, I mean, in, in order to practice this on myself, if I, if I make a painting, there are always some parts of the painting that I'm really happy with. You know, there, there's some issues. Maybe it's in the foreground. Maybe it's some, some of the, but maybe the sky was really good, you know? And maybe, maybe to focus on what you accomplished and not to be so concerned with everything else that doesn't work all the time. Because I tend to overwork stuff. You know, I don't know if you do that. You 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 yes. take a perfectly good painting and you destroy it, and then you got to build it up again, and then you destroy it, and before you know it, you get so sick and tired of it that you just burn it because you've been breaking it up and building it up so many times. So what yeah. print make what printmaking taught me, and this is really interesting because we that that was one of your original questions is. You can't control printmaking. You never know exactly how it's going to come out when it runs through the print press. You, you can do the best you can, and you can try to prepare how that color is going to be, or, but you don't know how the paper is going to absorb the paint. Uh, there's just You have to let go of perfectionism to do printmaking to a certain extent. You do the best you can, and then it comes out. And uh, in Ignacy, he told me something. He said, accidents are good. You know, like if I'm doing aqua tint on a plate and I drip some aqua tint, he said, leave it. That wasn't planned, but leave it. Accidents are good. So to let go of that perfectionism, printmaking's helped me a lot. <laughs> I, I totally believe that. And in my previous life, I was a sculptor and a mold maker. So. Oh, wow. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'd like it, to hear more about that. It is very similar uh, because when you have your wax or when you have your clay, Mm -hmm. um, piece that you do all this work on, then you have to encapsulate it in mm -hmm. something and then you have to rip it apart and then you need to pour or brush something else inside of it. And you have to pray when you take off the mold that it's going to work. Mm -hmm. So that is a transformative process that, um, teaches you to allow happy accidents too. And mm -hmm. I, I was just going to say in the, in, in the back of my mind, I have this notion that all of the paintings that I look at that I'm genuinely proud of and then mm -hmm. I feel that it was a great leap forward for me they're all the ones that have the most accidents in them mm -hmm. and I and I just happen to be of the right mind when I was creating them to to leave it alone mm -hmm. and just to allow it to be Mm -hmm. And I keep on chasing that. And I'm not sure if it's like a state of diminishing returns, but a few different times I just really allowed everything just to, to go and really like the results. And it's almost like 
you were saying with overworking pieces, um, mm-hmm. the work I do on a daily basis, I keep having to remind myself to allow accidents and because I'm, I'm, I'm almost kind of paranoid now that whenever I don't allow things to flow naturally mm-hmm. and just to happen, that inevitably the product will be overworked. Mm-hmm. Well, what I do, um, I have an artist friend who, you know, it's good to have support around you where you can get feedback on pieces. And uh, I have an artist friend who, when I'm really stressed about a piece and I just, I just see all the weaknesses and all the faults, you know, Yeah. Uh, she'll say, uh, let it sit for a few days, put it aside, start working on something else, let it sit and look at it with fresh eyes. And that's really helped me. And I know that when I'm at the point where I'm frustrated with a piece, I put it aside and I start something else. And when I look at it three days later, I might not even feel the same way at all. I might think it's really good um, and feel happy with it. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it, it's a good process for me. And that's why I always work on many pieces at the same time. I'll, uh, I hear other people talk about that too. And yeah. to me the notion of letting things sit is just kind of pie in the sky. Like <laughs> I never let things sit because okay. when I started painting, I was painting in front of other people in public mm. to directly sell it. So okay. when I started an idea, I finished an idea and then I wanted to sell the idea, mm-hmm. translate that to money. Um, mm. It is a really bizarre and different environment from the one that you're describing where your friends and colleagues sort of offer advice mm. that's helpful in New well, Orleans. I, yeah. It, it, it no, I'm just going to say, different. I don't, I don't always ask for advice. It's when I'm completely frustrated with the piece, okay. you know, because I usually, I work alone a lot. I, I, I'm mostly by myself. I can't even imagine painting in front of people at all. I, yeah. I've done a few. I've done a few demos, and I can do it, but I I don't like that um, having to paint in front of a crowd. To me, I just want to be in stillness in my studio, listen to music, and get involved in what I do. So I have I have a tremendous respect that you can manage to do that at all. I think I'd be so stressed out by everybody really? watching. Yeah, I think I would. I would be st- seriously stressed out if I had a, a an audience uh, watching me constantly what I was doing. Actually, remember, I painted in New York in Central Park in mm-hmm. 2015, and it was me and uh, an artist named Borbe and um, a couple other friends that I had in New York. And while we were working, you know, tons of people started gathering around looking at what we were doing, and it stressed me out so bad. <laughs> I really did. I needed to have wow. some... I needed to have some lemon and vodka to get through that. Uh, and I, I signed it. I, I got so drunk that I signed it. Uh, instead of 2015, I signed it 2012. <laughs> 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 I was so stressed out. <laughs> yeah. But, it, you know, we work differently. But I, my hat's off yeah. to you for being able to do that. But I could see how that's made you work a certain way. I, would t- I mean, plain air painters, too, that participate in these kinds of events that I know are popular in America, 
where this sort of, you know, it's almost like you're in a golf tournament and people go from hole to hole to look, you know, watch yeah. I, I, w- I would be seriously stressed out, I think, working like that. I actually went to coffee shops. After I got out of New Orleans, I was really um, starved for other people's gaze while I worked because mm. I almost felt like I was doing better work under the pressure mm. of just everyday people who would come by and would offer, sometimes they were um, very insightful with their mm. comments and other times they were super kind of pedestrian and other times when they're absolutely drunk and listening mm. to music, they'll come <laughs> by and, and they'll tell you that your piece is absolute shit. Mm. And I almost am a glutton for the abuse mm. of painting in public. And that's why I had to keep going to public places in order to make work. Mm. It, I, I really like to be around other people while mm. I produce. And I feel as though I get into my head a little bit too much if I'm alone. Mm. And of course, you know, because I travel full time, I don't have a studio. Um, I, I, I know that you have a nice studio. And honestly, I could not imagine being in a big room with just my ideas and my stuff inside of it, and then have to produce work. Hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, again, with with art, there's no right or wrong, and it's just fascinating to hear how you how you work and how I work, and to think oh, about yeah. that. Uh, but again, there's no right or wrong. Um, no, but it, but... you know, you've you've had to work from your car, and you're constantly traveling, and you need to sell to survive to get gas. So it's completely understandable to me. But what, yes. I, what, what I'm a little worried, I mean, from a psychological standpoint, the only thing that worries me is this self-destruction. You seek people to say, that's shit. You know, that you thrive on that. I wonder about that. That's kind of interesting. It is almost like in, it's almost like an audience for stand-up comedy. Mm. It's almost like I need, you know how they... I need to laugh. Mm-hmm. I need the little sparks of approval or disapproval, and then the offer for money in order hmm. to get revved up about it. And the friends that I do have that are painters and artists in New Orleans who worked out on the street and who did the exact same thing that I did for years, um, we all have the similar effect on us where we just really even though we complain about it and even though we know that not all of it is healthy we really want it Mm. we really want that approval or disapproval and it's it's almost like we can't sit with ourselves (laughs) but what i like you know i actually like to hear that you say i need their approval or disapproval what worries me is when artists are constantly seeking validation they need other people's approval to feel that something they've done is good does that make sense oh yeah totally that's that's when it gets dangerous but when you say i need their disapproval too 
It shows that yes. you have a you have a balance in this, and that's that's healthy. You know? Well, <laughs> does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah. I I, I yeah. had no idea what I was doing when I started. Like even though I was a sculptor and a mold maker, mm. I I really never painted. Like I, mm. I I always thought because I'm color deficient in my eyes, you are. Be, oh yeah, I, that I wouldn't be able to make it. So huh. I, I was really nervous when I started and I almost used um, other people's approval, disapproval as like um, some sort of metric, some sort of uh, almost GPS device to find where I was going uh, because I could only ask my wife so many questions before she like completely got frustrated with me. <laughs> and you know because I, I have a red green issue okay so I, I have to be really careful about the pigments I use and mm. the combinations of them and I, I, I did a whole bunch of research into into how people see different um, temperatures of red I, I, I don't know if you've done a lot of color theory with your work Oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm totally yeah. into that. Like Kandinsky's concerning the spiritual of art from 1911 is my Bible, where he analyzes yeah, yeah. the psychology of color and things like that. But it, your story reminds me of what I read about Edgar Degas. You know, when he started almost going blind towards the end of his life, he started using brighter and brighter colors. And I think some of his most fantastic work is from the late period of his life. So I, yeah. yeah. I, I, I really had no idea about Degas going blind. I mean, I, I know a little bit of art history, but it's admittedly mostly sculpture mm. and a little bit of drawing. I never paid attention to any painting before I began to paint. It was mm. almost like it was completely off my radar. Hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe that's good. Maybe that gave you a completely fresh perspective. Free of, <laughs> I mean, free of influences. I did the opposite. I, I dug into Van Gogh's life and uh, I analyzed his paintings and same with Ed, uh, with Edvard Munch and tons of artists. I, you said I was more inspired by the Impressionists in the beginning. It's true. I was really into studying Monet and, um, you know, the differences and things like that. So from a theoretical standpoint, I've read a lot. I, I've, I have tons of art books in my studio and I, I love to read about other artists in history, but you know, sometimes, like I say to my students, because I have a few students once in a while, I say, well, once you start on your canvas, put all your influences aside. You know, a lot of art schools will have you copy work from the masters to learn composition and things like that, and that's fine, yes. but I always encourage my students, like, we'll study theory, but then we put all the books aside, and because I want them to develop their own language. If, if you copy someone else, it's not your language, it's their language. You know, you have to, I mean, my goal starting out was if you walk into a gallery and you see the paintings, or if you see them in a cafe or wherever they are in a home, they should be able to see David made that. And what is it that makes them say David made that, not someone else? It's because it has to be genuinely your own language. You know, that's the goal. But I see that with you. I see that with your work. I can, well, thank you. No, that's and, really and, great advice. But it's it's really important, and um, you have to let go of your influences to a certain point, and create something that's uniquely your own. And 
when you post something on Instagram, I see that it's your work and you you probably see that it's my work before you even see who posted it. That's important. Most definitely. Yeah. That's important. <laughs> yeah. And you couldn't well, have done that if you if you didn't have that history. So so that you were free of influences helped you develop your own language and that's very important. I really have gotten into Van Gogh's drawings. Oh yeah, me too. They're fabulous. A, a few of them I started to analyze and then redraw and break down. I then took a look at some of my paintings and I noticed that I was using some of his compositions mm-hmm. without thinking about it in my paintings. You know, um, I do the same. Um, yeah. But you, we got to understand that even Vincent was influenced by a lot of things. And within art, there are some general rules for composition. You know, taking photography, we, a photograph, we realize this. Where do you stop the camera? Do you stop a little bit to the left, a little bit up, a little bit down? How much foreground do you have? And, you know, what Vincent was a master of was creating depth, you know. And, but he followed rules of composition that's pretty standard. But he has such energy in his line. And that's something oh, yeah, that I yeah. that, that's definitely inspired me is that everything moves. And when you say that my work is alive, it's probably because my lines are alive. They're not static, you know. Yeah. So and, and Picasso said that that a bad artist copy a good artist steals. You know, you think about that, you know, that if yeah. we cop if you copy someone flat right out, I mean. Picasso stole, everybody stole ideas from other artists, but, and nothing that we do hasn't been done before, really. Uh, so, you know, it's not strange. I mean, I'm sure if you looked at some other artists' work, you would see that you use some of those elements, but there are elements that you need in order to create a good composition or a good depth, you know, or color balance or whatever. But we can steal, we can steal elements oh, yeah. a little bit oh, here no. and there. Nothing wrong I, with that. I was actually glad to, mm-hmm. to see why I was doing some of those things. Yeah. Yeah. It, it gave me a little bit of insight. But isn't it interesting with Vincent's drawings, how many dots he used? Have you thought of that? I have. Isn't um, that fascinating? Yes. I, I did a master copy back in the mid-90s when I was in art school when I was going Mm -hmm. and all all I did was sculpture and drawing really so but um, I instead of choosing a more classical um, figurative draftsman I chose him and he had drawn he had a drawing of someone in a chair that I believe I did a master copy of I do not know the title offhand Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, I, I remarked at how many um, how many dots he used, mm-hmm. and how he used them, and it, it's almost like, um, at least in my mind, he had a Lego set where he had a bunch of little one by one squares, and he had a bunch of little one by two squares, a bunch of one by four squares, or and um, he sort of had all these different line um, lengths and curvatures. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of expertly composed them together. It, it, yeah. The way but you I know, saw uh, it, yeah. 
Oh, I was just going to say the way I saw it, extremely deliberate. Well, well, you know, Vincent. Was, I, I just have a he, shit memory. No, it's okay. <laughs> Vincent, Vincent was heavily influenced by several things too. He was studying intensely to develop himself as a painter, and some of the things that influenced him a lot were, first of all, Japanese prints. You know, he was fascinated with Japanese prints. The simple lines. In periods, he was also flirting a little bit with impressionism you know it was around that time around 1880 you know mm -hmm. when um, Seurat and uh, pointillism was was coming into play and impressionism with a light but he was also very inspired by Gauguin who was the the one he looked up to more than anything and that he started this art school with in the south of France if you look at Gauguin's early work the, the colors are just incredible his reds his yellows his blue and you look at Vincent's early work was mostly like Rembrandt-ish, you know, like a lot of browns and blacks. Yeah, yeah. Hardly no color. So Vincent experienced too, and he was also influenced by other things. So it, it's interesting to start putting these things into perspective. Yet Vincent was able to develop his own language with force, you know. So influences are always there. But you, we, the, the goal is always to develop your own language by stealing little bits here and there. I agree. And I have <laughs> another question for you about your painting, David. Okay. When you begin, do you begin thinking about the lines and the line quality? Or do you begin thinking about the color? Like, um, what do you normally address first in a work? Well, it really depends on the medium, right? So okay. if I'm doing a drawing, of course, lines are key. <laughs> you know, you, uh, yeah. like Paul, Paul Klee said, a drawing is a line that went for a walk. <laughs> you know, that's what drawing is. You cannot do drawing without line. But if you start an oil painting, I usually base it. Maybe I'll base it in red and then start painting yellow over or something but you build it up in layers and after, but, but I, I do a lot of wet on wet with oils. Mm -hmm. Now I don't do layers, but I let it dry for three days and then go back to it. I usually do it in one session, but with oils, then you do the lighter colors first and then the darker colors last and you save the line somewhere in the middle where the motif starts taking shape. Um, with printmaking, you have to plan every line because, first of all, it's going to be in reverse. You have to think of that. Then you have to think how many plates am I using? And the lines are so important because if I don't follow, if I do the red plate and I don't do where everything's going to be red in the right place, it'll mix with another color. So I need to be very careful of the lines. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm painting gouache. I do totally intuitively, really, really quick drying medium. Uh, but I usually do a base first, the background colors, and then start building it up and do the lines uh, somewhat into the painting uh, where there's a figure or something takes place. But it, there's no rules. I, I skip around. I break rules all the time. I just intuitively work, see what evolves. I might start to do a mountain. Oops, I lost my phone. <laughs> I just start, um, start to do a mountain and it could turn into a face, you know. Or a face okay. can turn into a tree. Uh, it's just whatever happens, you know. I, I never I, sketch. 
Except if I do printmaking, you really need to sketch. <laughs> you really need to prepare yeah. everything. Yeah. I, I really don't sketch or make little studies of anything either. I, I just immediately go into it. And unlike you, I have a lot of rules that I have to follow. I don't even sometimes consciously recognize that I have this order of operations and all these little uh, parameters that I need to fall within. But I think I definitely do. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because it's not line-based or color-based recently. I'd say mm. within the last year or two. It's all about the texture and the actual mark making. Like everything else comes secondary. Mm. Interesting. So, yeah, well, I would so, say I'm, I'm pretty close to you. I mean, mark making is extremely important. And lately I've just been doing drawings on black paper with watercolor pencils. That's mostly what I've done. I'm just uh, totally absorbed into this new technique that I started with in Scotland last year. Because I was up in the Highlands and I couldn't paint uh, in the gallery there, make a mess with oil paints. And yeah. so I just used what I had. And I had some black paper with me. And I just started drawing like I did an etching, and it was fascinating. And I've just been taking this technique further and further. And uh, so mark making is extremely important for me right now. I, I would love to go to the Highlands of Scotland, uh, Scotland. I took a few trips to Ireland in the late 90s. My drawing completely changed while I was there. Oh, yeah. Just putting myself into a new environment. I have been in the States now ever since. Like, I've been to Canada a few times, but that's about it. I really haven't left the country because, you know, I, I, I've had kids and just been traveling around, and uh, I, I was stuck in the South for a little while. But, yeah, I, I would really like to go to other places and see maybe how my work would begin to change with mm -hmm. my environment, because no matter where I go here, it's almost like I expect different things out of the places I go to. And I've seen so much of the United States that I don't really see anything that I'm producing um, differing in my environment. You know, when I'm up here in the mountains, I tend to paint just more mountains and clouds. And when I'm in California or Florida, I tend to paint more palm trees. And it, it, it's kind of that basic subject matter that switches around. But I, I'm, I'm more interested in if I was immersed in another environment, um, mm. how my, the, the fundamentals of my painting would change, like the color yeah, I think, or, or structure. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you're definitely onto something, and I force myself to go to new places sometimes to get new inspiration. And you know, being up in the Highlands where I was, it was an hour and a half north of Inverness. Uh, I got an artist in residency up there, so I could I could stay there for two months. But it did change a lot about my motifs. You know, a lot very different um, than Norway. And I've also been, you know, Barcelona for six years. Um, and I've been to New York every year for six years. 
So I keep going between these very different places. When I'm in New York, I'm focusing on urban things. I'm focusing on the energy of the city. I don't know any place on earth that's like New York. I mean, it's just so alive that it, it really affects my work when I'm there. And when I'm in Barcelona, there's a different feel, a different kind of energy that I tap into. And when I'm in the Highlands, it's, it's yet again very different. So for me, traveling is extremely important to keep pushing myself and developing new things with my work. But I do love to return to the same place over and over again. And that's why I've been to Scotland, New York, Barcelona, Scotland, New York, Barcelona. You know, just keep returning, developing these different scenes. But it's fascinating. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And writers know this too. I mean, Hemingway, he wanted to write when he was in Florida. Why did he want to move there? Why did he go to Paris to That's write some things? That's a fantastic question. Why does anyone yeah. want to go to Florida? <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Florida several times. Yeah. Yep. We um, had Twitter art exhibit in Orlando in 2014. Did you know okay. that? <laughs> so no. I was there two weeks and traveled around Florida then. Yeah, I, I, I had no idea. I, I'm, I go there every year, and I go back and forth between different parts of the country and Florida. Yeah, so Florida definitely has its own vibe. And mm -hmm. for me, it's, I, I don't know if you felt this way, just kind of coming and visiting. Don't get half as much done when I'm in Florida as I do other places. I don't know if it's the humidity or... <laughs> If it's the highway system or, you know, because everything has this kind of weird Disney facade to it now. Some mm. of these planned communities where I'm staying, it's, um, it's, it's kind of like this bullshit that you encounter everywhere that almost makes me not want to actually paint anything. So, it's a super, it's a superficial part of it, but, and I, I yeah. felt that in parts of Florida, but I remember I came to one spot. I came to Key Largo. We stayed in a small little place that we had rented. And there I felt so at home. But in some of these other yeah. places, I felt kind of lost. But you just got to find the spots where you, where you sink in and well, where you then, feel, this is where I like to be. You just haven't found the spot yet. But they exist. I, okay. I will take your lead on that. And I will go visit the Keys and see if it's any different. Well, go to Key Largo. Okay. That's where I went. I, I don't know what it was. I just loved that place. Uh, I only stayed there a few days. But if I go back to Florida, that's where I would go. I Excellent. Think. <laughs> yeah. Hey, David, I, I think we've done um, well over an hour now. And I only thought it was going to be like a half hour, 45 minutes. It's been a very long podcast, but it's been good. We've chatted. <laughs> it's, it's not been like an unofficial interview where you have 10 questions and I just answer. This has been a conversation and I've really enjoyed that. Good, and I've learned good. a lot about you and your work. So now when I go to Instagram and I see your paintings, I look at them a little different with more understanding. And that's always good. Same here. Hey, I really, really appreciate you talking to me today. And uh, hopefully sometime in the future we can do this again yeah that'd be great thanks okay. a lot all right take care of wherever you are <laughs> all right